Good morning. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? The sermon today comes from the scriptures in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, I'm sorry, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, please give to us what only you can give, which is knowledge and belief, saving faith, um, hope and joy, comfort, peace, and soul rest that come from being in the presence of God, being welcomed by the creator of the universe, by belonging to you. Lord, I ask for the minds that are open to your word and closed to the words of our flesh in the world and Satan, hearts that would be soft and malleable, and spirits that will be transformed and saved by the power of your word, because it is good and true and faithful. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can have a seat. All right, today is our final sermon of this sermon series, Gospel Traits. Uh, I want to assure you that that doesn't mean we're done talking about these gospel traits. Okay, it's been a sermon series on gospel traits, but as we enter into the next few weeks, uh, a long-term commitment into looking at and and learning from the Psalms, um, we're still looking for the truth of the gospel and the fruit that the gospel produces in the lives of those who believe it and are saved in it and are being saved by it. So I just want to assure you, we're not skipping out on these gospel traits. We're we're making a long-term commitment to believing the gospel and establishing and cultivating, by God's grace, a real, true gospel culture in this church. Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount, here in Matthew chapter 6, this is his teaching regarding man, money, and, and masters. And we actually see his teaching, his words, um, come true and play out in real life later on in Matthew chapter 19, when a, uh, a wealthy influential, important, and a pretty good, honestly, a pretty good religious young man comes up to Jesus and wants to talk to him, wants to ask him a question. Are you familiar with the, 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 the narrative that this moment in the Gospels of, of the rich young ruler? What, what, what does this guy, what does he want to know? He, he says, Lord, he says, teacher, um, I, I'm a pretty good guy. I've been obeying all the law. Uh, I want to be in your kingdom. i I believe you're the Messiah, so what do I need to do to get in your kingdom? Anything left over? You recall what Jesus tells them. Give all of your money away to the poor and then follow me. And what Jesus tells them is not simply a matter of his money, but he's saying, you're a young, influential power. He's a ruler, a powerful man with authority. So I want you to give your money away because when you give your money away, all that other stuff will go with it. So everyone who serves you, they won't serve you. 
You'll be master over no one, and, and now I'll be your master, and you just follow me. That's what it takes to be in my kingdom. And do you recall, do you recall what happens to this young man? He, he walks away sad. And then do you remember what Jesus tells his disciples? He teaches his disciples about this interaction. He says, truly, I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Why is it so difficult for a rich person to get into heaven, according to Jesus? In fact, not just difficult, but he says, well, it'd probably be easier if you took a camel and, and tried to stick it through the eye of a needle. That'd probably be easier than getting a rich person to enter into my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. The, the disciples go, like, if, if a guy like that, I mean, look, he's powerful, he's handsome, he's influential, he's, he's got all this money, and he's a good person. He just told you, I've been obeying all your laws, and you didn't correct him. Like, we know about that guy. He's a great guy. If he's not getting in, what hope does, it, does anyone else have of getting in? It's difficult, if not impossible, because apart from the gospel and Jesus, the person of the gospel, all human beings seek the wrong treasure. We seek it in the wrong way, trying to get it laid up and stored up in the wrong kingdom, trying to get it from the wrong master. That's what makes it impossible. And that this, this kind of pulls me in and reminds my brain of, of something that Joshua, the Old Testament leader of God's people, he, he's the leader right after Moses. It's something he says basically on his last day of leadership. He says, listen, hey, you guys gather around. Hey, you got a choice. We've got the God of our fathers who delivered all of us and he loves us and he's been faithful. Or you have all the other gods of the people and the tribes that, of the land that we've moved into. So you can choose any or all of them or some of them or you can choose this one. So he says, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, the God of our fathers. Here's the gospel trait. Here's what we're talking about today. It's generosity. It's the trait of generosity. Something that marks a Christian who believes the gospel. And we'll put it this way. Here's the main point of the sermon. Christians are masters over the money that God gives them for the glory of the master they love. Christians are masters over the money that God gives them for the glory of the master that they love. Remember that relationship we've been talking about? I'm not done talking about it. That relationship between joy and glory. We're built for joy. We want joy. We know I want joy. I got to go find glory and get close to it and never, never give it up. And so the master that we love we seek his glory because it's in his glory that we find our joy, our comfort, our satisfaction. And so if we want to pursue that glory, part of our pursuit is mastering the money that our God puts in our hands. So let me kind of get something out of the way here about like how we should be thinking about money because I, I just want to remove a, a, a stumbling block, maybe a speed bump. Uh, listen, it's not sinful to seek treasures or reward. That's not sinful. Like, go ahead and, and disabuse yourself of the well-intentioned and good-sounding, noble-sounding idea that you should do good for goodness sake. In fact, if you do anything 
hoping or expecting that something good will come back to you, then that's not godly. You're being selfish. That's not true. In, in the passage here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is motivating you by treasure. He's saying, follow me, believe me, get treasure for yourself. Seek, seek good. I have good in store. Seek it, and this is, this is how you get it. The question is not whether or not you want reward or treasure. There's really four questions you need to ask yourself and diagnose your desire for reward to find out if you're sinful. What sort of treasure do you seek? What, what sort of treasure or reward is it that you're after? Number two, what do you think, what is it you think you're going to do to get it? Number three, who do you think is going to put that reward or treasure in your hands? Number four, what do you intend to do with it once you have it? What are you going to do with it? The, the answers to those questions will help you discern, hopefully by God's spirit of wisdom, whether or not you should want that reward. The mark of a Christian, this gospel trait, is that their eyes are set on the reality of heaven and furthermore, the king of heaven, and they measure the joy and the significance of, their, of what they do and have in this life based off of what awaits them in heaven coming from the hand of that king and what pleases him. So this, this passage in Matthew chapter 6 has, has at least five big components, and each of those components is, is paired. It has, a, it has a kind of an opposite twin, okay? Five, five different things. I'm going to list them, and then we're going to go right through them and, and compare and contrast them, okay? There are two different means of laying up, two different ways of laying up. What does Jesus mean by laying up? There are two different kinds of treasures that you could be seeking. There are two different masters. There are two different realities, two different kingdoms, and then there's two different hearts, two different kinds of hearts. Let's take a look at that first pairing. There are two different means of laying up. First, there's the earthly way of laying up. This is the way of laying up that, that all human beings participate. This is natural to us in our natural-born self. Now, this is a fallen way of laying up treasures for ourselves, but this is one way. This is, the, this is the way the vast majority of human beings have, are, and always will try to lay up and, and get a hold of reward and treasure. It's, it means you work, it means you save, it means you spend and accumulate. Well, that doesn't sound terrible. That sounds like the American way. Yeah. To get more and more to hold on to. And the more you accumulate, the more you spend to accumulate more. This type of laying up is about increasing wealth so that you can increase wealth. That's pretty much it. That's the world's way of laying up. And then there's the heavenly way of laying up. There's Jesus' way of laying up, which means you give. Now, it doesn't mean you don't work hard. It means you work really hard, and you try to become very savvy and sophisticated. You try to be very smart with money. Christians are not supposed to be dumb with money, right? But it means we work hard to accumulate so that we can give it away. The desire to accumulate more money or possessions or wealth, the desire to accumulate that is motivated 
principally, principally by your greater motivation to be more and more generous. Like, why do you want to earn more money? Why would you want to increase? Why would you want to accumulate more wealth? Jesus would go, well, if, if you want to increase your capacity to be more and more generous, good, I love that. I bless that. But if you, if you just want to accumulate wealth because you need to accumulate wealth because in that is your peace and security and, and like you'll forget about me and you don't need me, no, I don't bless that. Increasing wealth in the heavenly way of laying up means that it's all about increasing your capacity to give, to be generous. Now, there's two different types of treasures. Two different tra- types of treasures. <laughs> and both of, both of these sorts of treasures... They both promise security, approval, peace, happiness, joy. They both do it, okay? Now, there's the earthly kind of treasure. This kind is destroyed by moth and rust, Jesus says. The, this kind, earthly kind of treasure is stolen by thieves, robbers, swindlers, greedy family, greedy friends, sophisticated marketers, governments, It's taken from you. It's always at risk of being taken from you. And they won't last. This sort of treasure doesn't last. It it runs out. You have to keep on replenishing it. There's a limited amount, and we all have to compete for it. And there's no guarantee that you'll get what you not only want, but there's no guarantee that you'll get what you need. And, therefore, the, the earthly kind of treasure can't actually satisfy or fulfill the promises they've been making to us, not even close. But then there's the heavenly kind of treasure that Jesus is telling you that you ought to want to get. Now, this can't be touched by any of those things. Moth, rust, robbers, not even Satan is allowed to touch it. Not even you can ruin it. You'll have them forever They're endless, they're everlasting, they're more and better than you could ever dream of on your greediest day, on your most sinfully and despicably greediest day. You can't dream of the more and better that the treasures in heaven are. And there's the perfect amount for everyone. Everyone will not only have what they need, but more than you could imagine. And they're guaranteed, they're guaranteed by the king of heaven. Our banks are federally insured, so if something happens, right, you know, bank gets robbed, you know, ah, hands in the air, oh no, it's the coppers, you know, it, all your money gets stolen, right, by some, some mobster, the, the, the federal government has promised to, like, make sure that you get all your money, but, like, at some point, we saw back in, like, 2007, 2008, 2009, that some banks went down because of robbers within the bank, and a whole bunch of people didn't get their money back. Not even the government can guarantee the treasures. And therefore, the treasures in heaven that you have, they can satisfy and they will satisfy everything that the Lord has said that they ought to satisfy. They'll do exactly what they're supposed to do for your mind, for your heart, for your soul, for everything. Now, there's two different masters. There's two different masters. There's money. There's earthly treasure. Money. There, there's an there's a, um, ancient word for this, uh, it, kind of a, a, an idol name, a religious name for this. It's, it's mammon, 
right? A personified idea of money and wealth uh, and prosperity. There's earthly treasures, which is money, possessions, comfort, convenience, a leisurely lifestyle, safe and secure. You're not worried too much about much of stuff, you know, pretty comfy. I'm pretty okay. I don't have everything in the world, you know, come on. I mean, compared to Elon Musk, right? Or, or, or Jeff Bezos or Donald Trump, like I, you know, I don't want to be materialistic. I, I just, this is okay, right? To, to pursue and want and desire earthly treasures. Well, if it's your master, no, it's not okay. It's very dangerous. This master, this master only takes from you in order for you to get anything. If you don't give to it, it will not give to you. And the exchange rate this master offers is pitiably, pathetically, deceptively, tragically, and cruelly unfair. Just look at the life that you have and the material possessions that you have earned and accumulated, and then consider the heartache, the worry, the concern, the hand-wringing, the, 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 the sweat equity of your mind, the sweat equity of your heart, the, the broken, some of you, the broken bodies that you have of what it took for years in order to accumulate the earthly material goods that you have. And in the end, it like, is that, is it worth, that exchange rate is, it's terrible, it's cruel. This master, the earthly treasures, they, they don't last. And this master, hmm, you got to keep giving to him. You got to keep feeding him. You got to keep serving him. You have to maintain this relationship and keep going and keep going. You have to keep purchasing from this master. And not just to get this master in your corner, but to keep this master. Because when you breach the contract with the master of money, the money master, mammon, when you breach this contract, he's out. Some of you have felt that before. When your money God abandons you, he's fickle. He, he doesn't stay with you. There's no promise of faithfulness to you. This master's anger is quickly and apparently sometimes arbitrarily kindled. And he's stingy with his benefits. And, and here's how it works. For all people, but I'm speaking specifically, if you're a Christian, mammon, this money master, he, he demands, this is, this is how he arranges it, he demands that you serve him as your master, and then he tells you to turn around and make God your servant. You're supposed to master God. Here's the pitch. He says, Hey, if you work for me, if you sacrifice and work and serve me, then I'll, I'll give you the stuff that you want, stuff that you need. No, he won't. It's a lie. He won't fulfill it. And God, this God you say you believe in, Christians, this God you say you believe in, you need to master him now. He's there to serve the prosperity and the well-being of your life. And I tell you this, I'm, I'm the boss and I'm giving you these orders and now you're the boss for, for God. If, if and when you pray, if and when you, for all the morality, all the religious activities you engage in, for obedience to him, he owes you. And for anything he takes from you, and for anything he might withhold from you, he's displeased you and therefore displeased me and you need to fire him. He's failed you. You can't trust him, you can't believe in him. That's how mammon works. That's the relationship, the hierarchy. There's this other master, though, and it's God. 
Jesus Christ. Now, this master has no need of anything that you could give to him. This master has no need of anything you could do for him. His own word says, who am I? Am, I'm God. Who am I that man would serve me? You have nothing to offer me. Lord, if you'll just do this in my life, I, you know, I, I'll give more money to the church if you'll do this for my life. He goes, this is not how that works. I already have your money. That, your money is mine. It's in your hands because I put it there. Well, no, I earned it. I, I used my brain and I'm really smart and I, I'm, I have a good work ethic. I was very disciplined. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Who do you think gave you that body and that mind, that heart, and those gifts and talents? Everything you have is my, you, you don't barter with that. That's not the coin I take. You have nothing to offer this master in exchange for something he could do for you or give to you. God's mastery is defined by what he gives to you. God's mastery is defined by what he does to you for you. And this sort of master remains faithful to the relationship even on your most feeble, weakest, most fickle, and wayward day. When you've forgotten him and you don't value him and love him the way that you ought to, that you know you, that you, know you ought to, he doesn't forget about you. He, he, he doesn't forsake you. He upholds the agreement. He upholds the relationship. And we want to talk about exchange rate. The exchange rate is scandalously lopsided in your favor. It's scandalously lopsided in favor. When you breach the contract with this master, he pays the penalty. He pays the debt. And he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And so for the Christian, Jesus demands that mammon be your servant. He says, I'll be your master and not only will I call you servant, but I call you friend. I call you brother. My father will call you son. My father will call you daughter. And mammon? We're going to demote him to simply money. It's not a god. And the money I put in your hands, you're a steward over it. It's my money, and it's in your hands, and you're going to master it. And, and whether or not it fails you, I won't. And listen, the stuff I give to you, yeah, I'm trying to make you happy. I'm trying to give you some level of, of peace and security. My father is a good father, and so he loves us kids, and he, he satisfies his children with good things, but, and he takes care of us. But listen, money and possessions and wealth and the security and the influence and power that, they, that money seems to say that it can give you, I don't mean for it to do that job. It's not there to carry that kind of weight. The kind of person who can carry that kind of weight can do that kind of thing for you. Fulfillment, joy, hope, courage, redemption. The kind of person who can do that is really glorious and awesome and deserves a lot of glory and, and, and praise and worship. I'm not giving that to money. That's for me to get. So I'm the one who fulfills you. I'm the one who secures. I'm the one who protects you. I'm the one who cares for you. Your money is not there to do my job. There are two different realities. There are two different realities, two different kingdoms, let's say. 
There's the present world that you experience with your senses. There's the present world that we, all, we just all see and live in. There's a pastor, theologian, and writer, a guy named Randy Alcorn, wrote one of the most important books I've ever read. Uh, it's simply called Heaven. It's a great book. And he says, the greatest deterrent to generosity is the illusion, the lie, the illusion that this world and this life are our home. That's the biggest roadblock to human beings, more specifically to Christians, being generous, is this illusion that this world is our home. What's he mean? Well, do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about what, the, this gospel trait of what it means for a Christian to live in this world? We're supposed to be in this world, but not of this world. We are both, we, yeah, I am a citizen, but I'm even more importantly a foreigner, and my true citizenship is, is in heaven, right, that kingdom? In this life, with unbelieving eyes, Jesus references these eyes, what kind of eyes do you have? To, is it, are they filled with light and truth of his God, or are they filled with darkness? He says, with unbelieving eyes, we can only understand our citizenship here. The, the invisible and as yet, as of yet, it's, it's unrevealed fully, but it's coming. This kingdom of Jesus, therefore, doesn't seem real. Not like really real. Intellectually, maybe real, hopefully real. At best, it's a nice ideal. It's a nice hope. The kind of hope is real. At best. But I can't live for that. I can't suffer for that. I can't put my money or my life or my family's welfare or, or our future. I can't put that on the line for heaven. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see what we're facing here? All I can have and all I can really count on for enjoyment, fulfillment, safety, peace, comfort, joy is, is what I can get here. Which is, which is what leads some people, sadly, to say things like, you know, Christians to go, man, I, I want the Lord to come back. But not, I don't want Jesus to come back un, until I've had a chance to get married. I want, to, I, want to, I want to experience childbirth. I want to have a child. I want to be a dad before Jesus comes back. I have this bucket list of things I need to experience before I die and go to heaven. And the implication is, if I don't get to have or do or experience those things, and then I go to heaven, I've missed out on something that heaven can't provide. That's simply not true. Here's the, this, this kingdom, this reality, denies the reality of that one. It says, that's not real. I'll let you keep it as a nice, like, ideal, a nice idea. But here's the problem for us. If you're a Christian, here's the problem for us, not just lost people. We're the opposite of generous, which is greedy, sin. We are covetous, sin. We're materialistic, sin. Not when you try to get your hands on a lot of money. That's, the, that's not what makes you greedy. That's not what makes you covetous. That's not what makes you materialistic, trying to get a lot of money. That's not what decides it. Working, earning, winning, inheriting, or even want, just wanting a lot of money. And by the way, who gets to define what a lot of money is? Right, we got people in this room right now. If we all open up our bank accounts, some of you are like, are going to go, you have got a lot of money to this person. And someone over here is going to say to you, You've got a lot of money because there are different spaces. It's, it's pretty relative. 
Like, I th- you know, we think that, you know, Elon Musk has a lot of money. He's got a lot of responsibility. He's got a lot to answer for all that money. Do, do you know what an aboriginal tribesman or tribeswoman in, like, Central America or, or, or the jungles of Africa, do you know how they would think and feel if, like, they saw the way we lived? We, we, we judge upward, right? But we don't judge inward. But, but wanting, earning, working, inheriting, having, that's not the sin. That's not the problem. Having a lot of nice stuff isn't the sin. Here's the sin. Here's what makes it so impossible for a rich person to get into the kingdom. Is their kingdom is on earth. They want their kingdom on earth. We're buying our heaven. We're working for and accumulating for our heaven on earth. Because this is our home. And listen, whether you're, whether you're trying to get everything of the best life here, and I, you know what? None of you are. None of you are that kind of motivated person because if you were, you wouldn't be here. You'd be out grinding, get, getting more money, doing whatever it takes. But whether or not you're trying to get all of it or you're just trying to get what us Americans call, you know, just a little slice of heaven. Isn't that a nice way to make sin sound pleasant? Just saving up, being responsible, stewarding my money, honoring God so that we can retire and just settle into our, our slice of heaven. You went, you went to the timeshare meeting where Satan lied to you, and you've bought in to get a slice of heaven. There's no slice of heaven here. What profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? To which many would go, well, I don't want to get, I don't, I'm not trying to gain the whole world. I just want a little bit. That doesn't excuse you. Jesus is going, Jesus, when he, Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gets all of the world, everything, and, but still loses his soul? What he's saying is, why would you sacrifice your soul even for a slice of it? You get the whole thing and still lose your soul. (laughs) What we're doing with our money, if our kingdom is here, what we're doing with our possessions is we're hedging our bet. We're mitigating risk. We're buying insurance. Just on the off chance that maybe heaven isn't all that it's cracked up to be or at worst isn't real. That's what we're doing. Jesus has said, I'm real, believe in me, all of my words, all my promises, you trust them and live like they're real. And what we do with our money, what we do with our budgets, what we do with our expenditures, what we do with the way we get that money is we are buying insurance just in case what he has to offer doesn't fully pan out totally. I'm getting some for myself here a little bit just in case he doesn't have some of that in heaven. That's the sin. That's the sin. It's disbelieving who Jesus is, what he's done, what he said about this life and the next. Belief in the gospel of Jesus. Belief in the gospel of Jesus means what Hebrews chapter 2, 15 says. It says that Jesus delivers all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery to sin. It's because of our fear of death and having no hope of heaven that we then sin. 
because there's no reward, there's no treasure there. All the treasure is here. And all I could hope for, for any sort of fulfillment, for as long as I might get it, it's, it's only here. But Jesus frees you from that slavery, not only to sin, but therefore, you know, I'm no longer like, truly terrified of death because then I go to the real kingdom, the truer and greater kingdom. The other kingdom, the other reality is the present and future new heaven and new earth, what we call simply heaven. And the, the present and future reality, it's a present and it is a future reality that you can only discern, that you can only perceive, that you can only understand or believe in spiritually by God's grace. It, and if this kingdom is the, it's the presiding, governing, authoritative, superseding reality for you that governs how you end up dealing with this reality if you're both in but not of, if you're a citizen but also a foreigner, then this present, the present reality here will come to a close. This kingdom ends. And then it's redeemed and the new, truer, eternal reality, that kingdom gets ushered in. I mean, it's eternal. It lasts a lot longer than this one. This reality is the guarantee that no matter what you do or don't get, in this life, you'll never miss out. You're not missing out. All and more await. In reality, this is not metaphorical. I'm not, please, if, if this was simply metaphorical or spiritual or idealistic, some sort of hmm, like vague Jedi force thing that we're going to float off into, you all should leave. You should, we should close this church down. I better shut up and stop teaching this and teach something else. Because if it's not real, if it's not true, most definitely spiritual, most definitely metaphysical, but it's not real and functional and physical, that's worthless. Whoa, you went too far. I don't know. Paul says, hey, if, we, if our physical bodies don't get resurrected, then we Christians are the most pitied to be. If it's only a spiritual resurrection, but Jesus says, no, it's not. Romans 8 says, hey, this... If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead also dwells in you, then that same spirit will raise your mortal bodies from the dead through that same spirit who raised Jesus. Paul says, this is the redemption of our bodies, adoption as sons. By this is the hope that we are, in which we are saved. This reality tells the truth. The other reality denies the greater kingdom. This kingdom doesn't deny. He says, oh yeah, this reality is real and it matters. This is not unimportant. This is definitely important. We're just saying that this one will end and the other one is the superseding, governing, eternal one. You need to know both things. Now, let me take us back to that main point of this sermon. Christians are masters over the money that God gives them for the glory of the master they love. That they love. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. You, got, you, can't, you can't serve two masters because you can't love them both. He doesn't say love. He says serve. But then notice what he means, how he's, how he's breaking apart and defining the word love. Because, uh, uh, serve. Because he says, you can't serve two masters because then you're going to love one and despise the other. 
He doesn't say, you can't serve two masters. You're going to serve one and not serve the other. He goes, you can't serve two masters. One of them you will love and one of them you will despise. What determines which master you serve? It's the one you love. It's the one you love. So this fifth pairing, this fifth component that has a duality, is two types of heart. There's two types of heart. When Jesus is saying, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. If, if, you, want to, if you want to find out what someone really loves, get a look at their spending record. Look at the ledger in their checkbook. Look at their, look at their bank statement. L- look, at, look at their credit card debt. What you sacrifice and what you spend for, what you risk for, what you suffer for, what you'll go deeply into debt for, Jesus points at, at that and he goes, that's what's got a grip on your heart. That's what you love. That's what you love. And Christians, not just lost people hate that. Christians hate that. Christians hate that. God forgive us. And he does. There's two types of heart. There's the heart of greed. The heart of greed. Now listen, greed isn't simply a matter of having some sort of like, like palpable, negative, mean attitude. That's not what greed really looks like. It's not so much some sort of emotional or spiritual deficit because greed doesn't really look or feel like anything because greed just feels like love. That's what it is. Greed is love. Greed is passion. Greed is hunger. Greed is appetite. Greed is desire. It's a positive, passionate devotion for in this case, money and possessions, specifically in the place of God. Greed isn't simply, it's not simply about not treasuring God and, and, and other people. It is a matter of that. But, but it's more about treasuring yourself and therefore money and what money could do for you in this life alongside of God or others. Now, do you recall what we said recently about the nature of sin? The nature of sin is misplaced loves and a displaced Lord. When you have things that you may ought to love, you ought to like them, but they're misplaced. They're, they're up in a higher chair in the hierarchy than they ought to be. And, and the Lord Jesus has been displaced from where he's supposed to be. So when money and what it can do for you becomes a misplaced love and the value you place on knowing and enjoying and trusting in Jesus, if that's, when that's displaced, now you're greedy. Now you're covetous. Now you're an idolater. And you've got to be real careful because it doesn't feel like anything. That's why, uh, just a little inside, uh, kind, of, kind of inside of like the, uh, the pastor playbook, like here's what we, it, we're notorious. You don't hear that many sermons on greed. You hear more sermons on generosity because it's tougher to get any of us to really test ourselves, like assess ourselves and go, am I greedy? Like no, like no one thinks they're greedy. No one thinks they're greedy. I'm not even going to defend that. I'm just going to let that, I'm just going to let that sit. You, e- please email me, text me, call. I would love to sit down and defend sometime later this week or whenever you're ready uh, that no one thinks they're greedy, right? It, it doesn't feel like anything. It doesn't smell like anything but it's real. But then there's the heart of generosity. Here's what a heart of generosity feels and looks like. 
I just want to give you like a vision of the happiest, most fruitful life of a Christian with a generous heart. Here's what it looks like. Number one, someone who is satisfied and content with a simple, humble, modest life. And that could look like a whole bunch of different things. So when I say humble, simple, modest life, please do not equate that to a particular square footage of a house or a particular make and model of a car, and you can't go any higher than that. But a humble, simple, modest life. You will need to let the Lord Jesus and his Holy Spirit govern and discern and hold you to what he says that looks like in your life. But in this life, this heart is less encumbered by the responsibilities of having things and getting things. Because the things that you own end up owning you. It doesn't just take hard work and money and sacrifice to get something. It takes hard work and money and sacrifice to keep it. You got a house? You know what I'm talking about. You got a nice car? Any of you ever gotten like that dream car, that dream truck? Boy, is it hard to sit in a restaurant where you can't see out the window and look at your car while you're eating. It's hard to sit in that restaurant and be engaged with the food and the people you're hanging out with because you're hard for your mind to escape. I wonder if some jerk's out there. I wonder, I wonder if they've dinged my car, if someone's going to try and break in. The things you own end up owning you. And moth, rust, fire, thief, they're at the door, they're already here, and they're coming for your stuff. And the generous heart is content with a humble, simple, modest life that's unencumbered by things owning them. Now, number two, it's a clean conscience that comes from the Holy Spirit's governorship. It's self-control. When you see, in the, especially in the New Testament, when you see the command to be self-controlled, I want you to understand that's not a command to you to control yourself. That's a command for you to submit to the control of the Holy Spirit. Self-control is control of the self by the Spirit. And then you're in good shape. You're safe. It's keeping your appetites and desires for more and better restrained and under the mastery of Jesus. It means the master of your lifestyle spending. It means, well, that explains the machinery of what has happened in your life. And you've seen it. When you get a better job, when there's a pay raise, influx of money or cash, a windfall, and you're still having money problems. It's because what ends up in our hands, we increase our lifestyle to match what's in our hands. We don't keep our lifestyle there. We're not letting the Lord restrain our thirst and desire to have things. And I have this much, I could have, I have this much, I could get this much, right? And now we're, now we're buying insurance on heaven. We're hedging our bet. But you have a clean conscience. Number three, it, it looks like it, it's, a, it's fueling a passion to see what God has put in your hands, whether it's a billion dollars or you're a kid with a few loaves and a, and a couple fish. But whatever God puts in your hand, it's fueling a passion to, to take what God has put in your hands and then you're like, put it right back and go, I can't wait to see what you do with this. I can't wait to see what you do with this. I can't wait to see what, from your hands, 
You inexplicably and miraculously and impossibly and in powerful and unforeseen ways do stuff for the lost, for the, for the poor, the suffering, the needy, the sick, the isolated, the defenseless. I can't wait to see what you do with what you put in my hands. I'm just going to shut it right back. Thanks for, thanks for this. You're supplying my needs. Because <laughs> you're going to do more that's miraculous and amazing that will last forever than what I would do with this. Because this stuff is just going to turn into future yard sale, yard sale junk at best. Someone else is someday going to own what I get with this. How about you own what you get with this, Lord? The heart of generosity has an excited and expectant kind of anticipatory delight. This is number five. When you consider that every day and every hour that you live, regardless of what you get and what is taken or what is withheld from you, regardless of that, you have this giddy excitement because you have the knowledge that you are that much closer to the kingdom and your true treasure. I'm closer to having it all. For the lost person, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. And for the Christian, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get. And every day takes you one step closer to the master, the treasure, the kingdom. You won't be able to lay hold of that sort of giddiness, not even just confidence. Or, or courage. You won't have that happiness or giddiness if you aren't heavenly minded. If heaven isn't really real to you, you won't get this. There's an old kind of religious-y kind of, I don't know, not Southern baptist but I'll just say it because a lot, a lot of people sadly equate Southern Baptist like, like, with like, you know, grumpy. It's not. But there's an old religious saying that that dude over there, man, he's so heavenly minded, he ain't no earthly good. That, I think Jesus, I think kind of the body of what Jesus says about heaven would call that stupid. Jesus would say, you can't be of any earthly good if you're not heavenly minded. And those who are most heavenly minded are most readily put to use by me for my kingdom. So there's no scientific there's no scientific or clinical or, or psychological correlation between having more or better things and having a very happy life. There's no correlation. Absolutely no. That's not common folksy wisdom. That's clinical psychologists, scientists, non-Christians with real statistics taken from real people collating the data. In fact, statistically, the depth and number of people complaining of onsetting and abiding depression and anxiety, the depth, I'm sorry, the intensity of those negative emotions and the number of people experiencing them goes up the further you go up on the income scale. We live in the most entertained culture the world has ever seen and we're bored. And we live in the most connected society the world has ever seen and we're the most lonely. And we, we live in the safest time in culture with the safest 
food and the most carefully crafted medications and, and the most technologically and scientifically advanced medical and surgical practices the world has ever seen. And we are the most tired, overweight, stressed out, hypertensioned, and hypermedicated people the world has ever known. Greater wealth, greater leisure, greater liberty, greater comfort, greater conveniences, and greater advances don't seem to be fulfilling the promises that they've been promising. Not even close. Now, am I saying that the poorer you are, the happier you are? No, no, no. There are a great many poor people who are in despair, and they're, it's terrible for them. I am saying, though, what I just said. And it's simply having more money and better stuff can't, for, it can't secure for your soul what your soul is desperately trying to buy. What your soul needs is something that only one man in the universe can purchase. And the gospel says that it was purchased 2,000 years ago. And it's infinitely priceless because the price of it is the most valuable commodity the universe has ever seen or ever will see is the blood of the Lamb, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's bought everything your soul needs, everything you need. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is, uh, is like treasure hidden in the field which a man found and, and covered up. And then in his what? In his joy... He ran off and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Joy, the truly happy life, isn't generated by what money that you have or don't have. But here's what Jesus says. If, if you want to figure out how joy and blessing works, Proverbs 14, 21, happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Proverbs 22, 9, he who is generous will be blessed. And blessed means happy. Those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's 1 Timothy 6, 9. But it's more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, chapter 35. It'll probably take you most of your life to simply start getting a grip, just to start getting a firm grip on what it is that a Christian who really believes the gospel starts to learn to want. It'll take most of us all of our lives, and none of us will fully understand it until like, Jesus kills us and we're in heaven, or he comes back. Here's what it is that a gospel-believing Christian wants, wants to do and take part in. It's number one, gaining by giving. We want to gain by giving. We want to lay up the right kind of treasure by laying down any other treasure. I got all this stuff, I can't do anything to lose it. I might give a little bit here or there, but not until it hurts too much because this is my stuff. And then Jesus shows up with his gospel and shows you a field that looks barren and empty. And you go, no, no. He goes, come over here. Here's a shovel. Dig right there. I'll give you this field. What do you want? All that stuff? All that stuff? You can have all that stuff. <laughs> like it's the one moment you might be might be excused you're not but the one moment you would legitimately maybe not be excused uh, maybe be excused for going god you're very dumb <laughs> i'll take that right because that's what it'll take that's the exchange of the gospel you have nothing to offer in negotiation with the god of the universe 
You, have no, you bring nothing to the table to make the deal unless you're bringing three nails and a bloody crown. He says, I'll take that from you and I'll give you my father in the kingdom. Gaining by giving. Number two, going after the true wealth of God's kingdom, treasures in heaven, the well done, and all that comes with that sort of reward from the king of the universe. Number three, living under the rule of the only master who loves you. Because mammon doesn't love you. Your money doesn't love you. Your career does not love you. I don't care if you're an employee or you're the CEO or you own your own business. Someday, you're not going to be there and it's either going to implode and all that you worked for and built is gone or someone else is going to run the thing and they've forgotten you. You might get a plaque on the wall with your name, which everyone walks by ignoring every day. You want to live under the rule of the only master who loves you, who's, who says, I, I die so you live. I'll put you before me. You don't give to me, I give to you. You don't serve, don't serve me, I serve you. You don't hold me, I hold you. Then you can hold me, but I hold you. Number four, it, it means living for the only reality that can be and is ultimate. It's that kingdom, that second kingdom. The present and future reality, which right now is concealed, but it's being revealed day by day and someday, the Lord Jesus will miraculously and miraculously and it will be true and real and physical. It'll be the day that God now dwells with man and man will dwell with him and he will be our God and we will be his people. It's a sincere conviction that heaven really is real, that it's what you and I were designed for. It's the sort of spiritual and truly physical reality in which the miraculous is an everyday occurrence and miraculously, we never get bored of it. The miraculous of God's might and power and beauty and infinite creativity and all that he's created and his love and his design will never grow bored or weary of it. There won't ever be anything like, nah, okay, I've seen that before, all right. There's nothing like that in the present and future oncoming reality that all Christians have a part in. It is ours. It's where the streets are paved with gold because it's in his kingdom where gold finally is put in its proper place and value. It's right next to asphalt on the stock market. We walk on it. It's what we make streets out of. It, it's where honor, dignity, honesty, beauty, humility, kindness, generosity, peace, all that is commendable, true, pure, praiseworthy, those are the treasures. And it's ultimate because... God is truly with us and we are truly him. If you can imagine a heaven, a paradise of your dreams, and if someone says, you'll get that, I mean, Jesus won't be there. But you can get that for eternity. With a great body, everything. And if you could be satisfied with that, you're not satisfied with heaven. Because heaven is only heaven because Jesus is the central and presiding figure in everything there. It's ultimate because this is where God is. It's ultimate because we and all of creation, we and all the universe will be redeemed and will finally be perfect. We'll be the way we're supposed to be, which is glorious. Mountains, rivers, oceans, fields, skies, space, planets, galaxies, all of them bigger, deeper, wider, richer, more beautiful, more exciting, more peaceful, more intense, more exhilarating, more glad heart giving 
than you can even imagine. And of all the beauty of the world and it, the created glory that we can see right now, and it is glorious, it is beautiful, it, 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 it's nothing. It is nothing compared to that redeemed, redeemed universe. And our, our minds and hearts and bodies will be redeemed so that we can enjoy that. Because presently, with what we're working with right now, we couldn't handle that. So he's going to give us what we need to enjoy that forever. And it's ultimate. No one can harm it. No one can touch it, much less enter into it or even look at it to hurt it or you. And it'll last forever, not only without an end in time, but also without an end to our satisfaction. Christians master the money that God gives to them for the glory of the master they love. And it means being generous. So I'm going to close. I'm literally about to pray. What do you want us to do? Is this where you're like, uh, you're supposed to give money to the church? Yep. We're going to take communion. And if you're a member of this church and you haven't been giving, it's a good day to repent and receive Jesus' forgiveness and obey him with your money and be generous to his people, to his church, to the things that he wants his church to do with that money and see him powerfully work with it. It's a good day to start with a clean conscience, being happy, without guilt, without shame, not under obligation, but cheerfully. It's like, I'm a, I can do this again. No one's going to go, oh, look who finally decided to write a check. No, none of that, right? Today's the day for you to master your money by showing it who's in charge. Checks, you don't write me, I write you. Cash, you don't decide, I decide. Budget, you don't fence me in. I, I create your fence. And I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to worship and honor the Lord and show him that you're my servant as I am his servant. And, and you're going to take some time during communion to pray and consider how alongside of and over and above how you are generous to God's church and the mission is you're going to consider how, how you ought to be looking to be more generous. Maybe some of you ought to be more generous to your wife. Maybe some of you need to be more generous financially to your husband more generous to your children, or more generous just simply in general to people. Um, I'm going to pray, and I'll say this. Uh, I just want you to keep your eyes out on our Facebook or other, other places. Um, I'm, I'm going to be looking to take a whole bunch of other things that I would love to say today. And I'm, I'm going to put them on the Internet for us to develop this and give us a little more um, just insight, teaching, and, and, and practical ways to obey the Lord for our joy. Um, so please keep your eyes out. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, for your kindness, for your generosity and mercy, for your grace. I do ask, Lord, <clears throat> that you would truly master us and that you would libera liberate us from the fear of death, which brings us slavery to sin and slavery and mastery under mammon, under money. Please make us so heavenly minded that earth Earthly masters, earthly treasures, earthly ways of laying up, none of, them, none of them have any hold on us anymore. Do something exciting and powerful amongst us, Lord, for our joy and most definitely for your glory. We love you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys.